You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Brian McCurta from Archivum Romanum Societatis Iesu. His paper was entitled The Impact of the Nine Years' War on the Continental Irish. Henry Piers in Rome and Spain. In considering the role of Irishmen on the continent in the context of the Nine Years' War, Attention has focused largely on envoys, chiefly ecclesiastics, who lobbied in support of a Spanish intervention in the Confederate cause. The impact of the war on the Irish laity resident in Catholic Europe, by contrast, has been little explored. The relatively well-documented profile of Henry Pierce makes possible a simple case study through which to explore how the war affected Irish laity living in Catholic Europe. In order to evaluate Henry Pierce's experience of the Nine Years' War while living on the continent in the mid-1590s, it is necessary to situate him within, however simply, within the political and, and cultural context of late Elizabethan Ireland. Born of an English military officer settled in Ireland since the mid-16th century, and his English wife, the family were resident on the property of a dissolved monastery located just beyond the Pale in County Westmeath since the early 1580s. Thus far, the family's profile fits that of the New English, those arrivals, usually Protestants, who served the expanding Tudor state and profited from the fluid land market as religious and political change took effect in various localities. Although his parents were English, adherents of the established church, the evidence of his memoir suggests that Henry, 1567, died in 1623, that Henry himself identified with the old established colonial community, the English of Ireland. As a youth, his cultural and political horizons were in part shaped by the family's neighbour, Christopher Nugent, 14th Baron Delvin head of one of the foremost English noble families of Ireland. In line with the outlook of this community, Pierce referred, quote, to this kingdom of Ireland, unquote. Growing up in the marcher area straddling South Ulster and the Northern Pale, he also had direct exposure to the Gaelic world, in that he was fostered with the family of Gerald O'Farrell and his wife in neighbouring Longford. An echo of that early formative experience among the O'Farrells was Henry Pierce's meeting with Brian MacFargus O'Farrell in Valladolid, Spain, when Pierce was travelling in that country. That Pierce noted this encounter was itself significant, all the more so in that he expressed his appreciation of Brian as a man of learning and 
writing some years afterwards, he noted that he had died by the time Pierce was writing the memoir, uh, concluded in 1603. Further, while recounting his travels, Pierce differentiated between Irish and English in referring to those whom he met from the Tudor realms. In presenting himself for admission to the English College in Rome, he indicated that he was Irish, but of English parents. As a loyalist, Pierce shared the political outlook of his family, which included the connections in the Irish military represented by his father, Captain William Pierce, and the more extensive network of his wife's family. Anne Jones was daughter of Thomas Jones, Archbishop of Dublin and Chancellor of Ireland. Thus, Pierce clearly opposed uh, O'Neill or Tyrone's campaign, and indeed his lands, Pierce's lands and properties in County Westmead suffered the depredations associated with the intensification of war in the wake of Tyrone's military success in 1598. It was through family contacts with the English Catholic community in England, in Dublin and in England, that Pierce converted to Catholicism. Age 27, married with a young family, with lands, with a position in the local government of his locality. He was seneschal of uh, uh, an Irish uh, uh, territory. Pierce decided to make the journey to Rome. It was not unusual for English Catholics to travel to Rome in that decade. Dating back to the mid-14th century, the Venerable English College in the city represented institutional continuity for the English community in Rome. While the seminary was established there from about 1579, the older role of hospice for English pilgrims in Rome continued. The Irish presence, by contrast, lacked a, in the city lacked a firm institutional base. There was a small but distinct Irish presence in Rome on Pierre's arrival there in September 1595. The most significant cluster was associated with the cardinal protector of the Irish, Girolamo Mattei, 1547, died 1603, presumably dating from some time after uh, his creation as cardinal in November 1586. By 1595, if not before, there was an informal college of Irish priests and students, noted as scholars, living in commodious premises adjacent to the church of Santa Lucia and close to the Cardinal's Palace. Those Irish at Santa Lucia were ecclesiastics, including students and diocesan priests, some of whom may have been functionaries in the various Roman curial institutions. One of these was probably Dr. Fagan, mentioned by peers of the Waterford clerical family of that name. Among the clerics resident in the Cardinal Protector's establishment, some were from backgrounds in Ireland favourable to Tyrone and his cause. Drawing on neighbourly relationships between their families in County Westmeath, while in Rome, peers sought out Francis Nugent, the noted Capuchin, Friar and called on him at the Capuchin Church of St. Bonaventure. The Irish friar was famed for his skills as a preacher. The friar Nugent, philosophy lecturer at Louvain University, 
and appointed superior of the Cantor convent at Bethune in August 1595, uh, was banished to Italy uh, in 1596. There he remained until he was allowed to return to the Low Countries in 1598. Thus, the friars' Italian sojourn overlapped with that of Henry Pierce. They were almost contemporaries. Pierce clearly viewed Friar Nugent as the most distinguished Irishman on the Roman scene during his sojourn. An indication of the suspicion surrounding newcomers from the Tudor realms on their arrival in Rome were the procedures required for entry into the English college. After the situation created by the papal excommunication of Queen Elizabeth in 1570, it was considered necessary to protect against English government spies. Because of this risk, no one could be received at the college without letters of recommendation from some English or Irish residents of Rome. By autumn 1595, the war in Ireland had been underway for over a year. Hugh O'Neill had just taken over as leader of the Confederate forces against the Crown. Already in Rome, the confessional motivation of the struggle was being asserted by a section of the Irish community there. Immediately after his arrival in late September 1595, Pierce let his own views be known. Reflecting the loyalism of his background in Ireland, he challenged the view of the conflict that was being presented by some of these Irish emigres in Rome, not specified, a presentation as a Catholic crusade against a heretical government. Presumably, Pierce offered an alternative interpretation along the lines of the revolt being a regional conflict, a a reaction by some traditionalist lords against the power of the crown. This stance quickly created difficulty for the layman newly arrived from Ireland. Some already established Irish denounced Pierce for his views. They may have highlighted the English and Protestant, thus heretical, identity of his family, thus raising the suspicion that he was a spy in the service of England, in line with the shady background of some recent English arrivals in the city. Presumably, those Irish in Rome desirous of papal support for the Northern Revolt were keen to enlist the voice of one just recently arrived from the distant isle and were commensurately angry at his open challenging of their interpretation. Pierre's position in Rome was thus precarious. By the early 1580s, it was habitual for those arriving in Rome from Scotland and England to be examined for heresy by the Roman Inquisition. In this threatening situation, Pierce turned to the man who was fast becoming his mentor, the English priest, Dr. Richard, Richard Haddock, kinsman of Cardinal William Allen and resident in Rome since the 1580s. The English priest had personal experience of the older community in Ireland, Catholic and Loyalist, based on a sojourn there. Thus Haddock was one of those English Catholics, priests and laity, who in the 1590s found temporary refuge among the gentry of the Irish Pale, a milieu familiar to Henry Pierce. Haddock and the young Irish layman, in, in Haddock, the young Irish layman had found an ally in presenting an interpretation of the Irish conflict to the Roman authorities, different from the Catholic gloss offered by some Irish residents in the city. 
Pierce expressed his gratitude for this support by dedicating his travel memoir to the English cleric. Faced with the denunciations of those Irish of the Confederate line, Haddock advised Pierce to present himself to the Roman Inquisition. This Pierce did. The Inquisition exonerated Pierce from any charge of heresy. Indeed, as a result of these contacts, Cardinal Panelli of the Inquisition invited Pierce for a private conversation. The Cardinal shared his admiration for the sufferings of the Catholics in England and the contrast between the saintliness evident in the English past and the heresy prevalent there in the present. Pierce's dependence on Haddock for advice in negotiating the Roman scene points to the role of clerics long established in Catholic centres in assisting more recently arrived laity when facing possible threats from the authorities. Moving from Italy to Spain in January 1598, Piers experienced at first hand how divisions in Ireland regarding the war were replicated among the Irish abroad. Right to the end of the war in 1603, the urban leaders in Ireland consistently refused to deviate from their ancestral loyalty to the crown, despite increasing blandishments from Tyrone to join the confederacy of which he was the head. By the 1590s, merchants from the major Irish ports, Dublin, Galway, Waterford, Drogheda, had established a, pre a presence in Cadiz and Seville. In the Iberian context, however, they faced the animosity of other Irish emigrants, partisans of the Gaelic revolt against Elizabeth. These included prominent clerics acting as emissaries at the Spanish court. In their analysis of the, of the Irish conflict, these castigated the leadership of the towns for siding with the crown against the Catholic confederates. In individual Irish merchants were thus denounced to the civil authorities as disloyal to what was presented as the Catholic cause in the Irish war. As a result, by the mid-1590s, these traders were viewed with suspicion by the civic authorities in the cities where they were established. In addition to the adverse publicity of O'Neill's supporters, the Irish merchants may have been conflated with the English residents in Spain and so viewed as heretics as well as enemy aliens. As a result, they had their ships and their trading stock sequestered and some were imprisoned. Having concluded his Roman sojourn, Pierce's visit to Spain was based on the emerging English Jesuit presence there. Another network was that of the Irish merchants in the ports of southern Spain. As already noted, Pierce identified with the old established community in, in colonial community in Elizabethan Ireland, Catholic and religious denomination, loyal and political outlook. He was on personal terms with merchants in Dublin and Drogheda. Thus, he could turn to the Drogheda merchant, Sebastian Fleming, for the payment of his expenses while in Seville. Pierce travelled from Seville to Jerez to collect the necessary money. To return to Ireland, Pierce travelled on the ship Fleming had hired to take a cargo of wine to Dublin. These, given these connections from Ireland, it was understandable that while in Spain, he became aware of and responded readily to the plight of the Irish merchants there under suspicion as a result of wartime stresses. 
The merchants were accused by some Irish in Spain, quote, that favoured the late commotion here in Ireland, which informed the states there in Spain that the cities from whence they came did not favour their proceeding, but ascribed the Queen's forces against them, unquote. Pierce reflected thus on the wartime plight of the Irish merchant communities in Spain. Quote, the merchants of Ireland which trafficked for Spain were then in very hard case, for there, in Spain, they were for the most part suspected of heresy and reputed for spies. Here in Ireland, vexed and ill thought of for being papists and mistrusted as intelligences uh, for the Spaniards. To come to their aid, he drew on his contacts with English Jesuits who were based in Spain. Several of these enjoyed the patronage of individual figures within the court at Madrid and in the various cities. Through these links, Pierce was able to secure the release from prison of several Irish merchants and the freeing of their goods. Thus, on his arrival in Madrid in April 1598, where he stayed with the English Jesuits, he made the acquaintance of Father Richard Creswell. In these, way, these years, Creswell was lobbyist at the Royal Court for the educational institutions being established by his fellow Jesuit Parsons. Through Creswell's intercession, Pierce was able to secure the release of a ship belonging to one Weston, a Dublin merchant, for the ship had been sequestered, quote, for the King's use, unquote. He procured a similar favour for one Comerford, a Waterford merchant. Thereafter, Pierce lived as a student in the Jesuit-run English College in Seville from April to October 1598. As in Madrid, so also in Seville, Pierce continued to prevail on English Jesuits established in Spain to intercede for individual Irish merchants who were experiencing the deprivations deriving from their status as enemy aliens. As an example of this involvement while in Seville, Pierce noted the Galway merchant, Richard Skerris, whose goods had been confiscated. Father Walpole, SJ of the English College, made representations to the city governor. As a result, Skerritt's goods were returned to him. Some experienced more severe penalties. Valentine Blake, another Galway merchant, had a ship and goods seized, seized, goods seized, and he himself was imprisoned. Viewed from the Iberian Peninsula, the Nine Years' War in Ireland was seen as a theatre in the military struggle between Spain and the Elizabethan government. The Irish in Spain lived with the tensions generated by this conflict. Pierce's experience illustrates the, uh, uh, the consequences of this uneasy status in relation to the Spanish civic authorities. His time in Seville coincided with the escape, the escape of Captain Richard Hawkins, a celebrated English prisoner transferred to jail in Seville in 1597. At that time, Pierce was in the habit of visiting Valentine Blake, Blake the Galway merchant, incarcerated in the same prison. While apparently not involved in Hawkins' escape, in the aftermath, Pierce was arrested on suspicion of being an accomplice. The Irishman was apprehended while walking in the, in the company of other Irish gentlemen. He was carrying wine, fruit and other banqueting stuff, which he had bought as a gift for the scholars and priests of the English college. Those responsible for his arrest believed he was bringing food to the SKP. Pierce was imprisoned and was about to face torture, when Hawkins was recaptured, and so Pierce was set free. The Irishman was detained a second time, shortly after moving out of the English college, when he was living at a Frenchman's house prior to departure for Ireland. 
He was arrested and charged with planning to take an English youth, presumably a Catholic exile, with him to Ireland. The authorities believed Pierce was a Protestant. The term Lutheran was used. Acknowledging the distrust which in Catholic territories surrounded natives of the Tudor realms, before leaving Rome, Pierce took care to acquire passports testifying to his Catholic credentials. On presenting these to the civil authorities, he was set free. His experience of arrest, imprisonment, interrogation, and the prospect of torture led him to reflect on the plight of prisoners generally. At the end of November 1598, Pierce's sojourn on the continent drew to a close. He sailed from Cadiz in a French vessel of Saint-Malo, which Fleming had hired for a consignment of wines from the Jerez area bound for Dublin. In addition to facing storms at sea, the vessel was chased by Dunkirk pirates. The crew failed to navigate accurately the Irish coastline. With difficulty, the ship arrived at Hoth, County Dublin, at the very end of December 1598. To conclude, Henry Pierce's sojourn in Rome and Spain for some years in the second half of the 1590s throws light on the experience of Irish loyalists in Catholic Europe during the Nine Years' War. Prominent in this group were the merchants from the Irish towns settled in Spanish trading centres. Pierce's story illustrates the pressures that these faced from the lobbying of local civic and religious authorities by those Irish who are partisans of the Confederate cause. As English speakers from a Tudor realm, emigres like Pierce had to prove their Catholic credentials so as not to be taken for heretics. As subjects of Queen Elizabeth, while on the continent, they had to indicate that they were not spies. The experience of Henry Pierce adds to our understanding of the kaleidoscope of loyalties that characterised Irish society in the war-torn 1590s. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.